Good morning. My name is Diana, and the Old Testament reading is found in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. Look, I am sending my messenger who will clear the path before me. Suddenly, the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you take delight is coming, says the Lord of heavenly forces. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can withstand his appearance? He is like the refiner's fire or the cleaner's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. They will belong to the Lord, presenting a righteous offering. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nora. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 3, verses 18 through 21. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Change your hearts and lives. Turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then the Lord will provide a season of relief from the distress of this age, and he will send Jesus, whom he handpicked to be your Christ. Jesus must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things, about which God spoke long ago through his holy prophets. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, found in Luke 1, 59 through 64. On the eighth day, it came time to circumcise the child. They wanted to name him Zechariah because that was his father's name. But his mother replied, no, his name will be John. They said to her, none of the relatives have that name. Then they began gesturing to his father to see what he wanted to call him. After asking for a tablet, he surprised everyone by writing, his name is John. At that moment, Zachariah was able to speak again, and he began praising God. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you for gathering us here together in this place to worship your name and to hear your word. We pray that as scriptures continue to be read and talked about and discussed among us, that you would open our minds to understand, that you would open our hearts to receive from you. Fill us with your presence and transform us by your holy love, that we might go into the world filled with all that we need to put you on display. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is up at New Life North today. So I have the privilege of being able to preach with you uh, this morning. I have this thought that I think we can learn a lot about one another when we examine one another's musical preferences. If you found out what my favorite song was, my favorite genre was, my favorite artist, which is you two, by the way, uh, there's, it, it says something, doesn't it? I got a, a fist bump from somebody, like, there's already a connection. Um, it says something. You find out what somebody's first song was at their wedding, or maybe even the theme song at their prom, and it says something about us. Even the format in which we listen to our music can be sort of revelatory. For those of you who listen to music on vinyl, any vinyl listeners, 
listeners here in the room. Yeah, these are like the true like music connoisseurs or those who've resisted all technological innovation since 1982. We're not sure which one you are, but you're one of those two people. Or maybe you're like me and you have a surprising and almost embarrassing amount of music still on CDs. Anybody? Chances are you have a car that was built before 2010 and has no Bluetooth capabilities, so this is your go-to option. That compact disc just keeps giving over and over and over again. But perhaps there's no more telling question in the arena of music than questions related to when do you start listening to Christmas music? It says something about the kind of person that we are. So we're going to do a survey this morning. And all surveys require the full, honest participation of the audience in order for those to be accurate. So I'm going to ask today that you'll practice. Everybody just raise your hand to practice. Very good. Everybody's okay. Very good. All right. So there's one group of people. We're going to call them the Buddy the Elf group. (laughs) For you... There is no date when Christmas music begins, like September, October, it doesn't matter. If that is you, if you're singing loud for all to hear, would you please raise your hand? Okay, everybody look around, now you see who those are. Okay, now there's others of us that are more principled. They are... Like the, like the Clark Griswolds, like we'll get there and we'll be there and we'll be all in, but it's got to be Thanksgiving Day or later. How many of those in the room? All right, look at what, I think the majority wins. Now, there, there are others among us though, who I, who I think are actually a lot like St. Nicholas. Not the jolly red-suited guy, but the fourth century like church defender of orthodoxy who says there is a right way to do things and Christmas music should not begin until December 25th. Do we have any? A few. Very nice. Thank you for defending orthodoxy and, and keeping Christmas from creeping like for all of us. Okay, now, this is maybe a little bit vulnerable, but there are some in the room that you're like, Christmas, no. The Ebenezer Scrooges, where are there? There are a couple. It's okay. We love you. You are safe here. If you were in the nine o'clock service, there were more of you, so don't don't feel alone. And then uh, there's some of you that didn't raise your hand, and I'm going to guess that's because you're in Enneagram 4, and you don't want anyone to put you in any sort of box, label you in any way. Like, you're just like, do not put that on me. I am my own person, and I do things my own way, and I don't do any surveys because they're all false. We love you. We're glad you're here too. This is the second Sunday of Advent. And during this season, Advent is actually a season, by the way. Is it not a a synonym for Christmas? Not another way of describing Christmas? Advent is the first season in the Christian calendar. It begins four Sundays before December 25th. It's a way, the Christian calendar is a way of us marking time according to the life of Jesus. And our calendar begins with us waiting in eager expectation, waiting with Israel for Jesus' first coming and entering back into all of those stories and remembering the time in which the prophets were silent and waiting to see what God was going to do and when God was going to do it. But also for us, waiting for Jesus' second coming, looking back 
into our story, but also looking ahead and waiting for Jesus to come again and set everything right again. So it's this unique season of preparing our hearts uh, for Jesus' return. We're also expecting and eagerly waiting and preparing to celebrate Christmas. And one of the ways that we're doing that here at New Life Downtown is also in our sermon series. Our sermon series is called Songs of Expectation. It's looking at the songs that people sang around Jesus' birth that are recorded in Luke 1 and too. They are really the first Christmas songs, the songs that people sang at the coming of our God. And looking at them to see, yes, what they reveal about the people that sang those songs, but more importantly, to see what those songs reveal to us about God about who the God is who came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're unpacking those songs. Last week, Pastor Glenn led us through looking at Mary's song and seeing how Mary is singing about this great reversal that God is enacting. Today, we're going to look at Zachariah's song. So if you want to turn with me in your scriptures, or you can follow along on the screens, we'll be in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. We heard a little bit of the preamble to this in our scripture reading, kind of the setup coming into this song, but just a little a little bit more about Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest married to Elizabeth who also came from a priestly family. They are from a groups of generations of people whose whole lives are dedicated to the service and worship of God and his people in the temple. They are described by Luke as being righteous, those who are living in right relationship with God and with their neighbors. They're described as blameless as it comes to the things of the law, those whose lives are fully above reproach. And as we're introduced to them, we think, wow, these people are incredible. There's a sense of honor and dignity uh, that's immediately ascribed to them, but we find that their life is not without heartache. That they seem to be the kind of people that we might look at and say, oh, everything I'm sure is going right and well for them all of the time. But we learn really quickly that even with all of these things, they have experienced deep heartache and loss in their lives. That here they are elderly and childless. That they've experienced the heartache and the pain of infertility and not being able to have a child that they've wanted. And some of us in the room know what that's like to experience that kind of devastating pain and to live with that. And here they are living with that for year after year after year after year, having all of these things and yet experiencing this deep loss and pain. In many ways, Zachariah and Elizabeth's story reminds us the story of Abraham and Sarah and sets up for us actually the same expectation that something miraculous is about to happen in their lives. The story goes on, Zechariah is in the temple and he's worshiping one day and suddenly the angel Gabriel appears to him and announces this incredible news that his elderly wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and that they are going to have a baby boy. This incredible news and Zechariah just can't believe it. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How is that going to happen? Like, I it just, he can't go there. And I, I can't blame the guy. I think that would be incredibly difficult to sort of wrap your mind around in that moment. But Gabriel makes it really clear who he is and what he's come and what's going to happen. And as sort of both a consequence of his, of his disbelief and as well as a sign for what's going to happen, Zachariah becomes mute and is unable now to talk through the whole pregnancy. 
and even through the birth of his child. And now we enter into the story, and it's eight days after his son John, who we know as John the Baptist, is born. And they bring him to be circumcised and to be named in front of the entire congregation. And Zechariah writes on that tablet, his name is John. And immediately he's able to sing, and he breaks out, and he begins singing this song. So if you follow me, verse 68, it says this. Bless the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to help and has delivered his people. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in his servant David's house, just as he said through the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. He has brought salvation from our enemies and from the power of all those who hate us. He has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the solemn pledge he made to our ancestor Abraham. He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that we could serve him without fear holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. And then he sings about his boy. He says, you child will be called a prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You will tell his people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins because of God's, of our God's deep compassion. The dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. This is a song Zechariah breaks out and singing here in this moment with his eight-year-old boy and he begins to finally be able to speak and he blurts out and he begins to sing and the song that he sings is not about the arrival of his son. The song that he sings is about the arrival of our God. That he breaks out into song, what Zechariah is singing about, he's actually singing about a divine visitation. He begins to break out singing about the God who has come. Even in the original language, we can see that his whole song is bracketed by this idea. Verse 68 has this line, Bless the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. The Greek word is, the basic idea is visited. And at the very end, the dawn from heaven will break upon us, will visit us. And his use of language is really intentional because this word, the very first time it's used in Greek translations of the Old Testament is when God visits Sarah. And all of a sudden, Sarah is pregnant. Abraham and Sarah find themselves with the baby boy. But the next several times that that word is used, it's talking about God coming to visit Israel in Egypt to rescue them. He begins singing and he pulls this word because this word reminds him that God is the God who keeps his promises and God is the God who delivers. He begins singing about this God, the God who has rescued his ancestors, the God who that came and rescued them from Egypt, the God that gave a childless couple a son and began to make a covenant with them that would last for generations, the God who keeps his promises and the God who has visited his people for the sake of deliverance has come. 
He breaks out singing about the God who's come in the person of Jesus. Even the song, the lines in there that are about his son are about his son's relationship to Jesus. About how John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for Jesus. That John the Baptist pulling back on Malachi and Isaiah is the one who'd been long prophesied before. Who would come like Elijah and make straight the paths for God. And to call people to repentance and to the forgiveness of sins. See, even this moment for him, this joyous moment in his life is framed and brought into a bigger and deeper and more beautiful and more joyous occasion because of who God is. That even in singing about his son, he realizes there's something even more going on in this moment. That even this is brought up into a larger story. The larger story about the God who comes to his people. This is what he sings about. There's something about the arrival of Jesus in the world that reframes everything. That shapes all of our songs around the fact that God has come. He begins breaking out and singing about this divine visitation. And then he goes on and we see though he's not just singing about this, but Zachariah's song is actually a salvation medley. That it's an ancient mashup of all these different lines and things that he's actually drawn from all over the Old Testament. When Zechariah is trying to make sense of this moment and all that's happening, all that he's seen, all that he's heard, Mary staying in he and Elizabeth's house for several months, all of these things, he's trying to figure, okay, God, what is it that you're doing? How do I make sense of any of this? He goes and he just reaches back into the treasury of the Old Testament. This is the only way that I can make sense of all of this. The only language that I can find, the only way that I know to express this is to take all of this up. Nearly every single line in the song is either a quote or an allusion to something in the Old Testament. Verse 69, he talks about David's house. Then verse 70, the prophets. In verse 72, his ancestral promises and his holy covenant. Verse 73, Abraham. And then over and over again, quoting the Psalms and other prophets. See, what Zechariah is doing here is what the church has actually always done. He said the best way for us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do is to look back on the God who's been working since the beginning of time and building up to this place and to understand this is what God is doing. He's making good in all the promises that he made from here back. The uh, uh, scholar Joel Green puts it this way. He says, what has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the scriptures, only in light of the Old Testament. And yet the Old Testament, the scriptures themselves can only be understood in light of what has happened with Jesus. And we need Jesus to help us to understand all of those things before. But all of those things before help us to understand all that God is doing now in and through Jesus. This is why we don't unhitch from the Old Testament. This is why we hold fast to both Testaments. To say that we are both people of the New Testament and of the Old Testament. So we understand Jesus in light of this. We also see what Zachariah is doing is he's pulling out all of these things because he's trying to present to us the broadest, widest, most sweeping, and breathtaking experience 
expansive view of salvation that he possibly can in these couple verses. See, oftentimes we like to think about salvation in very, very limited terms. To think about it as meaning this thing or that thing. It's about this or it's about that. But Zechariah's song bursts open and says, God's salvation is about all of these things. He pulls on the Old Testament to show us that God's salvation is about a God coming in fulfillment of his promises and in fulfillment of all the expectations that were set forth by the, by the prophets. That God's salvation is God making good on his word. That God is a faithful, trustworthy, covenant-keeping God. That this is part of what salvation is, is God doing the very thing that he said he was going to do. And then he goes on and he talks about that God coming is God coming to defeat his enemies and to forgive sins. To defeat enemies, the enemies who rise up against him and against his people. Any power that would oppress his people, any power that would try to stand in resistance to God's breaking reign in the world, he's come to defeat those things. To enact an incredible justice and defeat all evil in the world. That's why Jesus has come. To do that. But he's come not just to do that, he's also come to forgive us of our sins. The ways in which we have partnered with those powers. The ways in which we've cooperated even with our enemies in resisting God's reign and rule in the world. He's come both to enact justice and extend forgiveness because we need both. And he calls us to hold on to both. So oftentimes when we're thinking about salvation, we think, oh, God cares about this and not really much that. Or God cares more about this than he cares about that. As if God's care and concern and plans and purposes had limits on them. They don't. God's coming to do all that we need. To come to set all things in our lives and in the world that he created and created good. To set them right and to make them good again. That's the purpose for him coming. This is expansive, big, sweeping, breathtaking view of all that God wants to do in us and in the world. He goes on and even says that God's coming to restore us to our original purpose. To restore us, not just simply to set us free, but to actually teach us to live in a new way. That God's coming, yes, to save us from something, but he also wants to save us for something. That he's not simply rescuing us out of this life, but actually inviting us into a whole new way to live. He says it this way in verse 75, says, He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies. Why? It's just simply that we can say that we're rescued. No, but so that we can serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness, that our lives might be restored to that original purpose that he gave us in that garden, that we might serve him and love him and care for everything that he has given us. And we would do without fear and in right relationship with him and with one another. He goes on, verse 79, and says, He came to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
that came and take all of that warning and going on inside of us and in the world and teach us how to live out peace in ourselves and in our relationships and in the world. It came to reclaim us for our original purpose and set us on mission, his mission in the world. He pulls on all of these images because God is actually up to all of these things. Sometimes he starts with one area in our life. He needs to set us free from something. But he actually wants all of these things to be happening in us and through us. That's why he pulls on all of this stuff to give us this broad scope. Joel Green later on says this. He says, this song presents this melange of images not to specify with precision what form God's purposes will take, but rather to project its magnitude. It's immeasurability, it's irreducible quality. That this is what God is up to in the world. This is why God has come in the person of Jesus to do all of this and even more than he can contain in this song. But what holds all of these things together, what holds them all together is God's mercy. His deep compassion. The reason that God comes to defeat enemies and to forgive sins and to restore lives is because he is a God of deep compassion, a God of tender mercy, a God who comes to us in whatever situation we find ourselves to begin to do all these things in our lives and through our lives because he deeply, deeply loves us. He's a God of tender mercy and deep compassion for each and every one of us. That this is who he is. It's that that motivates him, that drives him to be able to do all of these things. He does it out of the abundance of his love for us. So this gets us to the third point in Zechariah's song, which is this. It's because of all of that going on, Zechariah's song is actually an invitation. Not just an invitation to sing. There's certainly that. I think Zechariah is saying, hey, here's some words for us to sing. Zechariah's song actually invites us to know the God who saves. And this is the deep cry of Zechariah. As he stands there in the midst of all of these folks, people he's probably known his whole life. As the community is gathered around him, he bursts out in song that they might know what God is doing, that they might know the God who's come to save, that they might know how and why the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come to them in the person of Jesus to keep his covenant promises and to fulfill and even blow their minds on all of the expectations that they might have what he's going to do. That they might know the God who saves, the God who's come to defeat their enemies, not just Rome, to actually defeat the great enemy of our souls, to defeat Satan and sin and death themselves, to put those all asunder. That he's come to defeat them. And not only has he come to defeat them, but he's come to forgive us of our sins, to know the God who forgives, who takes like that uh, prophet said, a refiner's fire and purifies us in a way that we never thought possible. That we look back on the track record of our mistakes, the track record of decisions that we wish we hadn't made, 
and find God beginning to do what only he can do with them. Redeeming us, forgiving us, cleansing us, cleansing our hearts and our minds, setting us into a new life. I had coming to save and to say, we can leave all of that behind and walk in an actual newness of life. Zechariah is singing that we might know this God. And for some of us today, we may be sitting here and going, I have never met that God. I've heard about God. I've heard about God's. I've heard something about Jesus. I've heard something here. I've heard something there. But I'm here because maybe somebody invited you or you're turning in online or maybe you just showed up or somebody invited you or you're curious. I think what Zachariah's song is singing over us to say, know the God who can save. Know the God that can redeem and restore all the things in your life. And to know the God who has come specifically that he might rescue you and that you might know him. So the good news of the gospel is not that this sort of Christian faith is being our search for God trying to find him. The great news of the gospel is that we serve a God who comes looking for us. That God is not a long way off from you. That this God actually wants you to know him. This God wants to be known. He wants to make himself known to you. And if that describes you this morning, I would just encourage you to say a prayer at some point this morning. And say, Jesus, would you make yourself known? Jesus, would you show yourself to me? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you in some way help me to see you? Would you come to me in the midst of this moment? Because this is the God that we serve. Not the God we go and search for, but the God who comes to us. And maybe for you this morning, that will be actually asking someone to pray for you after the service. Come forward and say, I really want to know this Jesus. Coming forward to our prayer teams and saying, hey, can you talk with me? Can you pray with me? Can you tell me something more about Jesus? Or maybe God has revealed himself to you already and you're not sure what to do with it. We invite you when we get to the point of the table to come forward and to receive the bread and the cup as a way of saying, yes, I do believe. Yes, Jesus, continue to show yourself to me. And maybe for some of us in here, we're thinking, well, I've I've known Jesus my whole life. I, I received Christ when I was two or four or six sitting on my bed with mom or with dad or in a Sunday school classroom or maybe it wasn't even, maybe it was a teenager or as an adult. Maybe some time has passed in that. And there's a sense for us, I think, in this moment that God wants to continue to reveal himself to us. And that our knowing of God is never just a one-time thing, but it continues to show us the depth of who he is. And I think in this particular moment, it's times where he reveals himself to us and restores onto us the joy of our salvation. And so maybe this morning, that's the prayer as we come to the table or even as you go through this season of Advent, that the God who met you, the God who visited you when you were four in that Sunday school classroom, when you were six with grandma and grandpa, when you were 16 at your neighbor's table. And that God would restore onto you that great joy of that moment when you were first rescued, when you first met him. He first caused his face to shine on you and you beheld his graciousness. 
And something welled up inside of you and said, oh my God, may that be restored to you today. And in this season that you'd behold him once again. And maybe for others, there might be a renewed passion this morning to sing Zachariah's song that others might hear. And renewed passion to share what Jesus has done in your life with the people who are around you. And maybe you've tried before, maybe you've shared the good news about Jesus in this setting or that setting, and maybe it hasn't gone well. I've been there numerous times. It's gone terribly. <laughs> There's something about the love of God revealed in Jesus that continues to call us, to compel us, to say, God, is there anybody here that you're inviting me to sing your song over? that maybe you want to sing Zechariah's song through me? Is there anybody here that you want to be light in my life through to them? That my presence, because of your presence in me, my presence in their life might dispel darkness, might bring hope, might shed lights, might begin to fill and renew and do something unique and different. Or maybe it's that renewed passion to save very specifically. Do you know Jesus. Let me tell you about him. In fact, this is what Luke's gospel is all about. The very purpose that Luke wrote his gospel, the very beginning, the whole reason that we have Luke and Acts is that he goes on and he says at the very beginning, he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he says, I've investigated all of these things from the very beginning to write to you this really orderly account. Why did I go through all of this? So that you might that you might know the truth. Luke is one of these really brilliant storytellers, so he begins talking about that, and he tells this amazing story at the end of his book, where he's talking about Jesus having died and raised, raised from the dead. And the disciples, though, haven't fully figured out what's going on, and there's a couple of disciples walking on this road to a town called Emmaus, and they're confused, and they're bewildered, and really, they're, they're quite overwhelmed with grief. And this man comes walking up behind them. It's Jesus, but somehow he keeps them from recognizing him. I don't know how that works, but it's, I'm going to ask someday. It's fascinating. So he comes up behind them begins having this conversation. And they're like, hey, what's going on? Why are you guys so upset? They're like, haven't you heard all these things that have happened? No, what? Tell me. Uh, and so they begin to tell Jesus all about himself. Um, and they're having this conversation. And they're going through and they're like, we had hoped he was the one. And then he begins to start talking to them and he's talking to them as something is happening inside of him, but they still don't know that it's Jesus. They still don't know exactly what's going on and they get to the place and Jesus is going to walk on ahead and they say, no, 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 wait, wait, keep talking with us. Come and eat with us. And this happens so often when Jesus gets invited into a meal, he takes over as the host. <laughs> and there he is. And all of a sudden he takes the bread and he breaks it. And all of a sudden, they realize, oh, it's Jesus. See, Jesus continually makes himself known to, to us in a variety of ways. But one of the ways he does it is every Sunday when we come here. And when we break the bread together, we share the cup together, we're reminded of who the God is that saves, the God who's revealed himself in Jesus the God who made himself known to the disciples that day on that road to the breaking of bread continues to make himself known to us this morning in the breaking of the bread 
and the sharing of the cup. So as we come to the table, we come and we start with a prayer of confession, a prayer of saying, God, we recognize that there's been a number of things in our life that haven't lined up the way that we hoped or imagined or dreamed or that you wanted, hoped or dreamed for us. But we come and we confess not to grovel before God, but because, as it says in the very first line, that we believe that God is a merciful God, a God who reveals himself to us, a God who pursues us, a God who wants to be known and make himself known to us. So we say these words, asking that God would do again what he's done so many times before, make himself known to us, either for the first time or once again, renew to uh, restore to us the joy of our salvation or to renew a passion in us to make him known to others. So let's pray these words. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.